Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. On an afternoon 100 years ago, in the month of May, an earth dam in the mountains above the city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, broke and sent a wall of water anywhere from 30 to 75 feet high, depending on the width of the valley, down the valley for some 15 miles where it hit the city of Johnstown. When it hit Johnstown, in a matter of about five minutes, the entire city was destroyed and 2,209 lives were lost. The disaster need never have happened. It was caused by human nature, not just mother nature. It was the worst disaster in the history of the country up until that point. It's not an old story. It's as new as Three Mile Island or Chernobyl or the Alaskan oil spill. And when we honor the, the victims of that dreadful, unnecessary day, a hundred years later, it can be seen as a model of what we should not do. If we're going to tamper with nature, be it building a dam or poisoning the atmosphere so that it destroys the ozone layer, we had better know what we're doing. Furthermore, we are putting ourselves in terrible risk if we assume ever that because people are in positions of responsibility, they are therefore behaving responsibly. The South Fork Dam was owned by some of the wealthiest, most influential and powerful figures in the United States in the year 1889, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Clay Frick, Andrew Mellon, and more. The feeling was that if, if the likes of those men were in charge of the dam, in charge of looking after the lake and all of it, all the consequences that could happen if the dam ever broke, the dam was surely in good condition and of course that was wrong. The third lesson from, the, from this story is the recovery of Johnstown, which took place in rapid time, very much like the recovery of San Francisco after the earthquake in 1906. And the reason it happened so rapidly is that people worked together. We human beings work best, do our best when we work together. Now the Johnstown flood was the beginning of my career as a writer. It was my first book. I saw some photographs in the Library of Congress of what had happened in Johnstown and I wanted to read a book about it because I was so astonished by the level of violence revealed in those photographs. I'd grown up in Pittsburgh, not very far away in western Pennsylvania, and my knowledge of the Johnstown flood up to that point was that when we were children, we used to have a, the gravy in our mashed potatoes in a little lake and we'd take our fork and break the lake and we'd say the Johnstown flood as the gravy went down among the peas. <laughs> so I wanted to read a book about the subject and I took it out of the library and it was terrible. So I took another book out of the library and it was even worse. And I'd been working as a writer for about 12 years then. I just began as an editor and reporter at Sports Illustrated. I'd, been, I'd written a radio show for Time Magazine. I'd gone to Washington to work for the U.S. Information Agency during the Kennedy administration. And I knew I wanted to write books, but I didn't know what the book would be about. And I thought, 
I'll write the book about the Johnstown flood that I would like to read. And I'll try and write two pages a day, five days a week. In a week, I'll have 10 pages. In a month, I'll have 40 pages. In 10 months, I'll have 400 pages. They may not be any good, but I'll have a lot of pages. After the Johnstown flood was published, several publishers came to me right away and said, would you like to do the San Francisco earthquake or the Chicago fire? They were typing me as bad news of McCullough, and I didn't like that prospect. I had never been interested in disasters or disaster books. What interested me about the Johnstown story was the human element. So I was looking for a symbol of affirmation. What could I write about where mankind had done something right? And I arrived with, at the subject of the Brooklyn Bridge as a consequence of a chance conversation at lunch one day when two, two writers that I knew, one who wrote for Science Magazine and the other who, who was an engineer by training, began talking about what they didn't know when they built the Brooklyn Bridge and how they built the caissons down under the river. And I knew instantly, there's my subject. Winslow Homer was once asked about uh, what it takes to be an artist, and he said something quite wonderful. He said, to know a good thing when you see it. I think I did know a good thing when I saw it in the subject of the Brooklyn Bridge, and it eventually led to the book about the Panama Canal. I knew nothing about bridges. I knew nothing about canals. I was intensely interested in the people who built the bridge and in all that went into the building of the canal and all the political consequences, including in our own day. I have learned a great deal in my work. I think that's the greatest satisfaction of my work, that and the people I've worked with. My books, The Path Between the Seas, Mornings on Horseback about Theodore Roosevelt eventually led me into public television. I have for four years been the host of the Smithsonian World Series. I am presently the host of a new series on public television called The American Experience, which is the first attempt on television to have history as a major continuing theme every week, an hour documentary. I'm also the narrator for a major series on the Civil War, which will begin broadcasting next year, 10 hours on the Civil War. What I have learned is that the best teacher you will ever encounter is inside you. Don't ever let anybody tell you that because you're good in English or history, stay away from math and science, or vice versa. I opened a closet in the, in the attic of the Rensselaer RPI library to a treasure of old diaries, engineering specifications, memoranda from the Roeblings, all scientific, all technical, all beyond my comprehension, and I had to go through it for three years and figure out what it meant, figure out how the bridge was built, what was the math involved, what was the engineering involved, and it was very heavy going, but I did it. Furthermore, not only was I able to understand it, it was extremely interesting. When you get to college next year, for most of you, treat it as a great buffet. Try a little of everything. Try as many subjects as you possibly can. If you are by nature interested in science and technology, take history, take English. If you want to major in history or English, take biology, geology, astronomy. It's your only, perhaps your only chance. Take the teacher, not the course. 
Find out who are the best lecturers, who are the most stimulating people, who are the most enthusiastic and excited, drawing their energy from the material. Take those courses. The reason they're well known, the reason those professors stay on is because they're very good. When you choose a career, remember that what you do will affect the kind of person you become. And what you do will be very selective in who you associate with. One of the great pleasures of my work has been to work with people like Edward R. Murrow and Eric Severide and Barbara Tuckman and on and on. One quick final point. We are all here because of a great natural resource which exists behind the eyes and between the ears. That source, the, the brain, depends on oxygen. Stop the oxygen to your brain and your brain will revert to oblivion within a matter of minutes. Oxygen comes through the process of photosynthesis, leaves. Without photosynthesis, no oxygen. Without oxygen, no brains. The brain is fueled by the leaf. And that is the most vivid example I know of our dependence on the natural world. Barbara Tuckman was asked at a press conference not long before her death what she thought was the most important event that future historians will single out from our time. What that, it, what that is happening or has happened in this century will future historians consider the most important. And there was a long pause, and then she said something that surprised a great very many people. She said, I think it's what we are doing to the natural world. Good luck to you. And in wishing you that, I'll tell you one final story. Niels Bohr, one of the great brains of our time, a great physicist, lived in a house not far from the Physical Institute in Copenhagen. And one day, one of his young protégés came out to see him, and he noticed that over the door, Dr. Bohr had nailed a horseshoe. And the young protege said, surely, Dr. Bohr, you don't believe in such superstitions as that, bringing you luck. And Dr. Bohr said, no, no, of course I don't. But I understand it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs>